Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Ilona Thompson with Palate Exposure. And today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Kieran Cakebread. And she has a wonderful brand that we'll discuss in detail called Ziada. Karen has been with Cake Brett brand for quite a number of years, and we'll delve into that in a mere moments. Uh, however, I think we first need to acknowledge um, the modern times. This podcast is being recorded during the COVID pandemic, uh, which obviously has a lot of negative sides, and we all know and we all feel that pain, but I want to focus on the positive. I think if there's a silver lining to this uh, t- t- terror, really, is how I've come to think of it, unseen, um, and that makes us so vulnerable, I feel, because it's something we can't identify, we can't really properly frame because there's so little information about it. But if there's a silver lining, it must be that it gives some of us the opportunity to truly connect, even though we can't maybe touch each other physically, we can connect intellectually and emotionally. What defines us as humans um, is that interdependence and compassion and really the desire to socialize. And I think it also adds a really large dollop of honesty to the communication because we've been stripped of sort of the, the facades um, that no longer matter. So I find a bit of a raw quality to the communication that's appearing um, in front of us. And what truly binds and unites us, uh, the mutual appreciation that we're all human all over the globe. We're all international citizens in that sense. And my conversations with um, a lot of people I've come to admire over the years um, in the winemaking community and vintner community in particular has been so extraordinary. So I'm very privileged to do that and to bring it to your attention. Um, And Karen and I have been looking forward to this discussion for a while. So here we are and you get to be the lucky beneficiary of the many wisdoms I know she will share in this conversation. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much. And I'm honored to be here. I also um, echo your sentiment about the times that we're living in right now. And looking for that silver lining myself. And, and some of the things that I've been doing is calling friends. I, I, I make sure that I call people every day and have good conversations with them because now I have the time to do that. And also just to connect and we're doing social happy hours, you know, with wine and cocktail or whatever you, your preference is. But it's, it's a new way to connect and to stay close to our friends. And I do hope humanity does not have a short memory when it comes to what we're experiencing right now. And this has forced, I think, friends and families and the way we work to, to connect in a very different way than we were. I mean, we all living in this sort of crazy rat race. Uh, you know, everything is a, a spur of the moment or on the moment and, and 24-7. Um, and it just sucks the energy out of you. So. I think in a way, I hope people are able to 
sit back and and realize how important that spending family time is and i know some people can't see their families so i appreciate everybody uh and i for what they're going through and i it's heartbreaking and so many levels but as you say we're looking for the silver lining i think so there is one well put so well put i absolutely agree and you know for some of us it takes a life event an illness a car accident to kind of hit that reset button because it clarifies what matters and those very vulnerable and dramatic moments. And now that button has been hit globally. And how we emerge from it as a society and individually is what matters the most. And I think the thought leaders, the emotional intelligent leaders, as I like to think of it, hopefully will be at the forefront of this and will emerge stronger and more compassionate and really better individuals, more connected to ourselves than before. That's my hope anyway. Yes, mine too. And one thing that I'm doing, um, so in Calistoga, Napa County, we're on uh, day 21 of our stay at home. And um, I started keeping a log of the, my daily activities because I know someday when this is over, uh, I'm going to look back and say, what did I do for all of those days? <laughs> and some have been more productive than others, but you know, I think it's it always just helps me sort of track how I'm feeling and who I've talked to and how everybody's doing. So that's one of my little ways to get through this. That's such great advice, you guys. I'm going to take it to heart. You know, we, some of us had diaries when we were kids. Um, and this is kind of a similar thing. And you get to self-reflect and it's therapeutic. Great advice, Karen. Um, so your last name is Cake Bread. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase. Clearly an iconic brand, my God. If you're any kind of uh, wine lover, or even familiar simply, let alone aficionados, so revered for so many years, really foundational brands, one of the foundational brands of uh, the new world, you know, as interpreted by California and Napa Valley. Uh, so you worked there for quite a long time. You're related by marriage, correct? Yes, I was married to the oldest son. So the cake bread, Jack and Dolores are the parents and um, they have three sons. The oldest is Steve, who is my former husband. He was the only one that didn't eventually work in the winery. Uh, his youngest brother, Bruce, came in early. He went to UC Davis and um, worked in the winery as a winemaker and then up to Reading Company. But I, um, when I met Steve, I was living in uh, Santa Clara County, which is also known as Silicon Valley. And we were both working for a small little family business called Hewlett Packard. <laughs> we, and, and at that time, I'm dating myself here, but at that time, uh, the founders, Bill and Dave, were still running the company. And it was an amazing experience being there at that time because they had this incredible uh, respect for their employees and there is something called the hp way which only us old timers would probably even know what that means but it was really a way for them to honor and respect and support their employees so they did a lot of fun things and i i feel like the foundation of my business life was built while i was working there on how to treat people in the workplace and in my personal life. So I, I, that was an amazing experience that I will carry with me my entire life. And it was there where I met Steve and we, you know, I, he had a funny last name and we were both working in the um, accounting 
um, department of, of a certain area of the, of the business. Mm -hmm. And eventually we got married, obviously. <laughs> so, and I remember him telling me that he had a, a um, his parents had a, a small little winery in Napa Valley. And at that time, that was back in the early 80s. Um, there was a small little winery. So that was when I was introduced in a big way to, to Napa Valley. I had always appreciated wine. I had always come up as a young adult to Napa and, and gone wine tasting. I was taking some wine international wine tasting classes at the local college in the evenings. And um, I was interested in it, but it was an unplanned career, <laughs> honestly. It just sort of evolved. Uh, and I, I guess I've always lived my life a little bit more on my intuition than on my brain. So it was, it was really an unplanned path, but it's the right path. And I'm really, really happy I'm here in Napa Valley doing what I'm doing. Such a fascinating journey, literally from Silicon Valley to Napa Valley. And yeah. if we were to um, get into the weeds a little bit, uh, Napa Valley could have been a Silicon Valley had it not been for Napa Land Trust. So there's Correct. kind of an odd but really important parallel there. Uh, but in any event, HP, obviously another um, you know monumental brand in American history, really. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that you had your early kind of exposure to you know the professional work environment and the culture it probably didn't resemble the culture of today and that's probably a great thing but in any in any case what a great training ground um what strikes me about napa valley is that it kind of welcomes people from all walks of life and all experiences and there's quite a bit of executives that settle there quite a few i should say yes um and i think that that speaks to the strength of the valley because that business acumen and um you know, that background really prepares people well for running a small business. Um, I, I find it utterly fascinating that someone like you came so organically to wine appreciation because you were a consumer at first, just like. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was uh, it was an interesting path. And, you know, it's it's been an interesting journey. Uh, these last several decades, I'll say. Yeah. But one, I, uh, a year after Steve and I married, he had an opportunity to relocate to Hong Kong to because he was a finance guy and they, they asked him to go to Hong Kong, asked us to go to Hong Kong and run uh, one of the financial divisions there. So a year after we were married, we packed up and moved to Hong Kong. And uh, I'm, I have an adventurous soul, so that was, I was good with that. The company does send you out for a week to sort of look and see if it's someplace you could really live. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was pretty overwhelming. You know, it's an assault on every sense you possibly have. And, and, uh, but it was exciting as well. Yeah. So I, I had to take a leave of absence from HP for I could not work in Hong Kong as an expat. Mm -hmm. oh. So I ended up, um, well, it took several months just to get our lives organized because we made the mistake of moving there during Chinese New Year. And so everybody was on, uh, on vacation uh, holiday for about a month. So we had like very little to no furniture for the first several months. 
uh, but I think what was really interesting about that experience is that it it just gave me a whole other perspective on the world. And I think traveling just broadened your horizons on a way that it's just hard to explain. And I was fortunate to be able to be there during that time. And at the same time, Cake Bread Cellars was starting to export wine. And the first country was Japan. So during my time there, and then we, from there we went to Singapore for another three years. So total five years of living in Asia. Wow. And I, I started coming back to Napa Valley a couple times a year to see friends and family. And, uh, and also basically became an intern, a harvest intern during that time because I was always here during harvest. So that's sort of how I got hooked in being, you know, in, in transitioning in from Silicon Valley to Napa Valley. Uh, I was out, one of my jobs was going out in the vineyards and sampling uh, grapes as we got close to harvest. And there's a, a, a very well-known brand called Vine Hill Ranch mm -hmm. and on, the, on the east, on the west side of Oakville, right at the base of the Mayakama Mountains. And Cape Bread has been purchasing Cabernet from them for eons. So one of my jobs was out sampling grapes and I was out one beautiful summer, fall morning sampling in the vineyard and we're out there early. It's, it's beautiful, it's quiet. And I just stopped and looked around and I was in awe. And, I, and that was my sort of my epiphany that I felt like that's where this is where I belonged. <clears throat> and, and then the journey to, that got me here is another story. But after having that, you know, sort of epiphany, serene moment, I reached in to grab a couple of berries off of a cluster and I looked over and there was a rattlesnake stretched out on the cane. And so oh. I think I probably jumped like 10 feet in the air and, and ran the other way. Oh my God. But <clears throat> fortunately, it was early morning, it was cool, and, and it was still sleeping. So, uh, but I never went back to that row <laughs> when I was sampling. I don't blame you. <laughs> goosebumps right now. Yeah. Yikes. Um, yeah. What a fantastic way, though, to uh, build a relationship, um, really, with the viticultural aspect of it, as well as the others in the wine business. I mean, I can't think of anything more instructive than actually being in the vineyard, sampling the grapes, getting to know the vines. I'm sure you worked in the cellar because you mentioned that yeah. you were there during harvest, which by the way is really hard work. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not as romantic because some of us, you know, believe <laughs> on paper. Um, so you really kind of immersed yourself when you were there into every aspect, right? Yes. One of my other jobs in the cellar, which um, at, you know, it's hard to believe that this was several uh, years ago. We had a little five ton basket press that was operated manually. So there's nothing more boring than sitting in a chair at the press all evening, you know, because you're pressing fruit as it's coming in and processing. You only can process a little bit at a time, but it, it took a couple of hours for each load to go through its cycle. And um, so that was a little boring, but it was interesting because my brother-in-law, Bruce Cakebread, uh, the winemaker at the time, he would say, okay, just listen. You can hear it when the grapes are finished crushing. You know, the, the 
bladder press is finished squeezing the juice out because the grapes are drying out and this is a different sound. So yeah, I learned I learned a lot and then people would come to the tasting room and I, the press was right next to the tasting room. And during the day they would poke their head in through the window where I was sitting and ask all sorts of questions. And one of the questions that for some reason always came up was how many pounds of grape grapes in a bottle of wine? So I, I've always said I felt like a lawyer because I said, well, you know, there's no exact answer to that. It just depends on the varietal and how juicy they are. And, you know, so I never really had a, a great answer for them, but it's around a couple of pounds. Yes. Now, it's actually a really common question in the wine industry. I don't know why people are so curious. I guess it's a way to correlating the actual fruits mm. of the harvest to what they're drinking it's later relating to it right yes um, yes and also during the harvest we uh, the cake breads uh, also hosted a bunch of chefs from around the country and media for a program called the american harvest workshop so my other hat that i wore during harvest was working with my mother-in-law and the chef in the kitchen and putting together and, and managing the program for all the guest chefs it was a bit of a boot camp for chefs, a uh, wine boot camp, because back then most chefs did not think too much about how wine and food work together. So our, our mission was really to give them a hands-on experience and uh, they did everything from going out in the vineyards to picking grapes and, and going through the whole uh, crush process. And uh, we didn't make them uh, clean out any tanks, but <laughs> if we had more time we would have. But I and and then just tasting through all the wines with the winemaker and going into the lab with with um, the enologist and and just learning the nuances of wine. So when they were in the kitchen, it was a bit of a chaotic situation because we had five restaurant chefs from around the country, different states, our chefs, our team, and they all had to make a dinner. And we had all of our purveyors at the winery, so they got to shop. Um, right there on the spot with all the purveyors, create a menu and execute it. And we would invite guests to join us for dinner. And, um, and that, was, that was a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. And I think that was really a turning point for a lot of those chefs to understand how wine is made, what it is. We only get one chance to get it right in the bottle. If they have something doesn't quite work out one night on a menu, they can tweak it or they can tweak it at the moment, but we can't do that. So we, you know, we have a fixed product and theirs is a little bit more fluid. So it was very eye-opening. A couple of them actually came to Napa Valley, moved to Napa Valley and opened a restaurant. That is phenomenal. So you were kind of pioneers of that whole wine and food pairing mentality, right? I Yes, I hate to call it food and wine pairing. I think it's just really, because I'm not one of those people that will tell you what you should and shouldn't eat and drink together. Uh, I think that the only thing, if you want to get uh, creative, I would always just say, give the wine the chance to show, show you what it is, taste it first before you put any food in your mouth. And then you have a bite of food and then you have another sip of wine. And that's when it really hits home sort of the chemistry between the food and the wine. So eat and drink what you want, but play around a little bit. And, and, and I would always um, promote the idea if you're out in a restaurant, pick what you like to drink first, 
and then find something on the menu to go with that wine, what you think would go with that wine. So there's just, it's just a little bit different approach. I mean, I know we've lived through the whole wine and food pairing and, you know, so we don't want to make people uncomfortable or it's not a test at the dinner table. You know, you just want people to enjoy it. That's what it's there for. Absolutely. You know, it's almost impossible for me to think about the time when chefs weren't aware of the wine culture because, you know, with the proliferation of the food network, it seems like every chef is aware of not just wine, but just the beverages that go hand in hand in some way. So the idea of you kind of, you know, educating really that community and, and getting them to realize the value of wine and the role that it plays, um, both consumptive and actually emotional as well. Because it oh, enhances yeah. it, you know, that's really wonderful. Um, you know, I, I really am impressed that you were early on so cognizant of that aspect. The winery, you know, is, it was really, um, it was really the, the philosophy of the winery that wine and food go together and they should be enjoyed at the table together. So it evolved into this program and we did it every year for, I think, well, now the winery took a little bit of a break because they're going through some construction. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, Ken Frank Latoque was one of our guest chefs. So cool. You know, and he was, he was, had his restaurant down in Los Angeles and he, you know, would just, he just picked up and moved to Napa and opened a restaurant. So because of that experience, it just opened his eyes to first, because our, we have a, a, you know, amazing selection of purveyors, food purveyors that live in Northern California. And then um, chefs get really excited about food and they, they eat everything and they taste everything. So we introduced them to some purveyors that they still are buying from to this day. And it, it's been amazing. It was an amazing experience. So I, I had uh, 18 years of uh, uh, amazing opportunities and uh experiences working at cake bread cellars because i also once we moved back and i went to work full-time for the winery mm -hmm. i i wore a couple of different hats so with my father-in-law jack i was the international marketing uh, and salesperson so we i traveled a lot with him around the world mm -hmm. selling cake bread cellars wines and working with the distributor the importers and then um, at home, when I was there, I was working with my mother-in-law on the culinary side of the, of the wine business. We did a lot of entertaining. We have full-time chef. We used to, we, they still do cooking classes. We wrote a cookbook. So, um, so I wore two hats. I had the best of both worlds. I could, you know, be out in the vineyards and hang out with the grapes and I could be in the kitchen and hanging out with the chef. So I, I, I'd like to say it rubbed off on me, but I still not, I still would never help myself a chef. I can barely cook. So um, practice makes perfect and, and uh, I, I don't get the chance. Although I am cooking a lot more right now as staying at home. But um, so it's a great experience. So I think every, every piece of the, my history has helped me build has helped build the foundation for me to get where I am today. No, I can see that this extraordinary multifaceted background prepared you quite well um, because 
you have the marketing side, you have the culinary side, you have the consumer interface side. I mean, you basically really had everything covered in order to become a vintner, but there had to have been some emotional reasons as to why Ziata was born, right? Yes, um, I realized after 18 years in Cake Bread, you know, went from a small boutique winery to, you know, uh, uh, because of Jack's dedication and, and vision of what the brand should be, it, it's grown quite a bit over the years. And as, as the winery was growing, uh, you know, everybody was busier. I was traveling internationally more. Um, so I felt like I was missing that piece of being integrated from vineyard to bottle. And so I finally said it was time for me to start my own project. And so in 2008, I, I had left Cake Bread at the end of 2006. Took me some time to figure out how and what I was going to do. But I really have a passion about being involved in every step of the process because it speaks to me. I'm a tomboy. I love being outside. I remember growing up, I have two older brothers, and uh, we were always outside. I was never one of those kids that was going to sit in front of the TV and uh, on a Saturday and watch cartoons. No, I, as soon as I could get out of the house, I was out. And the only rule mom said was just be back, you know, before the sun goes down and, and time for dinner. So I feel like being in an agricultural world that I'm in today is, has always been innately a part of my DNA, and I'm just fortunate that I, I, I get to do it here. But so in 2008, I took the, I took the leap. Uh, it wasn't the best time to do that as we were going into a financial crisis. And my friends thought I was crazy. They said, why are you starting a business? And, in the beginning of this, you know, disastrous time financially. And my answer was, wine takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And if I can get it together, then by the time it's going to market, you know, maybe things will be better. So I just kind of jumped off the cliff. Uh, and then I also started with not your traditional Napa Valley varietals, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir. Um, there's a saying in our business, it's like make what you like to drink because if you can't sell it, you have to drink it. And um, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot were those two for me. I, I think they're very versatile wines. And I also fell in love with Cab Franc. So, um, Mountain, mountain Cab Franc, I guess the vineyards that I tend to gravitate to are coming from the mountains, mostly on the east side of Oakville. So I did make a little bit of Cab Franc along with the, the Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot. So those are my three uh, starter wines, let's say. And then over time, I've uh, eventually added the other varietals. But I think the hardest part of starting the brand you know, after after being in the valley for so many years, you know people. I, I could find fruit, I could hire a winemaker, I could buy barrels and do all, all of those things. But coming up with a brand name is was the hardest thing. Yeah. That was the hardest part. 
because as people may or may not know, the wine business, we're regulated by the federal government and in our naming of a brand, we cannot have something that sounds or it seems to be similar to an existing brand. Uh -huh. So there's a, there's a website in the TTB arm of the federal government where we can go in and search names. And so I, you know, by myself at my desk in my office was noodling ideas and I'd go search it and it was already taken by another winery. Aww. So finally I said, wow, I understand now why people put their name, their family names on a label. It's so much easier that way. <laughs> so, um, and I was, I have been a cake bread for a lot longer than I haven't. So I still, cake bread's my family name. And I'm like, well, I can't use that. It's already on a, on a label. So my mother uh, is my Italian side of my DNA, and her name uh, was Annunziata. So I sat down at my desk one day, and I wrote out her name. And I looked at it, and I said, I have to make something up with this, because I had searched all of my relatives on my mom's side of the family, and all of those names were already on labels, on Italian labels somewhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, so I, her uh, name's name ended in Z I A T A, so that's how Ziata was born. It was, uh, it was, it's my mother. It's my mom's wine. Aww. <laughs> yeah. So she's she's she was still alive when I started the brand, and her eyes lit up when I told her I was naming it after her. And I, 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 I'm going to say it added a little bit more time to her life. And so I got her involved right away. And, and uh, I remember the tasting Sauvignon Blanc, our first release of Sauvignon Blanc. And I said, well, mom, here it is. You know, what do you think? And she, she tasted it and she smacked her lips. She goes, it's pretty good stuff. Yeah. All <laughs> so, right. High praise, right? Yeah. So that's, that was sort of how it all started. And uh it's just slowly grown the brand and added varietals um mom was an integral part she was my first sales rep so i used to <laughs> take her out with me i would go collect wine because in the early days i delivered all of my own wine to my customers here in napa valley mm -hmm. whether it's um private customers or if it was retail or restaurant so I would have to drive down to the American Canyon to the warehouse and pick up wine and then make my deliveries on the way back so I, I would always take her with me and a lot of the buyers would come out and say hello to her and say oh this is Ziada and they were she her little eyes would light up big smile but the, I love the story about she there's a market in San, in St. Helena called Sunshine Market which is right around the corner from her house Mm -hmm. So one day she called me, I just released the Sauvignon Blanc and she called me up and she said, are you going to sell wine to Sunshine? And I said, well, mom, probably. Yeah, eventually. I just haven't gotten there yet. She goes, well, I have the wine buyer's card. You need to call. Said, okay. <laughs> oh, All right. So, you know, a week goes by. Did you call him? I'm like, not yet. And she goes, you need to call him. So another week goes by and I knew that she wasn't going to let up. So I finally called the guy made an appointment and um you know i said i'm i understand my mother tracked you down and got your card she wants me to you know come and taste wine with you and he said well come on in 
um, happy to taste the wine. So I go there. The only thing I had at the time was Sauvignon Blanc. This interview so. continues in the next episode, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning into the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. <laughs>